Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeiser de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Welcome to the Paseo Podcast, everyone, and thank you all for downloading this episode. We're back from the holiday break and really missed you all. So happy you are back with us this week for another episode. If you're joining us for the first time and like what you hear, keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Paseo Podcast. If you really like what you hear, give a good rating and uh, leave a comment on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on. It really makes a world of difference. On today's show, researcher and filmmaker Andrew J. Padilla joins the show. We're going to talk about filmmaking, his project El Barrio Tours, gentrification in East Harlem, the expansion of political parties in Puerto Rico, and a whole lot more. But first, there's been a lot of Boricua news that has come out since we last recorded. First off, Jennifer Lopez is dropping singles and proving time has no power over her. If you saw the cover art she put out for her latest single, In the Morning, you'll know what I'm talking about. Google it if you want to feel awful about yourself. I saw it and had the sudden urge to start doing some cardio workouts. Definitely did not make me feel the best about myself. <laughs> um, in other music news, Benito Antonio Martinez Ocasio, a.k.a. San Benito, a.k.a. Bad Bunny, dropped another freaking album, El Ultimo Tour del Mundo. This is the third album he's released in 2020, and reviews have been pretty strong. Had the chance to listen to it myself and continue to be impressed by Bad Bunny's creativity. I think the true test of a good artist is their ability to experiment, uh, take risks, and explore narratives outside of their normal comfort zones. So it really feels like San Benito did just that with this record. Uh, I don't have a favorite song just yet, but La Noche de la Noche hits so well. So, um, but I mean, I should also say, you know, I'm kind of biased in my appreciation for anything involving Rosalia. So uh, I still got to sit with it a bit more and determine what my favorites are. But more importantly, I'm curious to hear your takes on Bad Bunny's album and JLo's latest music. So let us know what you think about either by emailing us or reaching out to us on social media. For any Star Wars fans listening, Boricua Rosario Dawson made her debut in the Disney Plus series The Mandalorian as Jedi Ahsoka Tano. Uh, this marked the live-action debut of the character. Before this episode of The Mandalorian, Ahsoka only appeared in animated Star Wars films and projects like Star Wars The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. So once the season wraps up, we're definitely going to have our podcast friends over at the Triad of the Force, which is a Star Wars podcast hosted by Boricuas, in case you didn't know. Uh, we're going to have him come on the show and talk about uh, Rosario playing this character and the show overall. Correct me if I'm wrong too, y'all, but I think this is the first major role for a Boricua in a Star Wars property since Jimmy Smith played Princess Leia's adoptive father in the prequel trilogies and Rogue One. Could be wrong, uh, but let me know. In PR political news, Puerto Rico's governor-elect, Pedro Pierluisi, uh, he announced cabinet members with both new and familiar faces. Getting into his picks would be uh, a whole nother show, but feel free to let us know what you think about his picks. Finally, I wanted to talk about the sad news about the Arecibo Observatory being shut down. After weeks of concern over its stability, 
parts of it were breaking. Um, the cables that actually su suspend it um, started to break, uh, largely due to storms, earthquakes. So it was kind of hanging on by a thread, literally. Um, so after weeks of concern over its stability, the 1,000-foot-wide radio telescope collapsed a few days ago. I remember going there as a kid and being in awe of its size and beauty as it was nestled within an awesome treescape. It was once the world's largest single-dish radio telescope, and in its nearly 60-year history, it did amazing things like spotting the first planets beyond our solar system, detecting pulsars, a discovery that won the 1993 Nobel Prize in Physics, and acted as a planetary radar, which was key for studying asteroids. I could nerd out on this and go on and on, but if you aren't familiar with this iconic observatory, please read up on it. I wish there was uh, you know, some type of plans in the works to fix it, but it, unfortunately, it looks like it's RIP for the Arecibo Observatory, so you will be missed. I know that was a lot of news I just threw at you, so let's switch gears and hop into our interview with Andrew. <laughs> Bienvenidos a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. It is November 19th, but that doesn't really matter because it's a podcast. You're listening to this whenever, wherever you are. Ultimately, we're just happy you are here with us today. Listening to this episode, we have a very special guest. We have researcher and filmmaker Andrew J. Padilla with us today. And we have a special guest interviewer. She normally works behind the scenes booking guests as our publicist for the podcast, Ambar Colon. We'll give her a chance to introduce herself too on the show. My name is Ambar. I go by Ambi. I also work at La Voz Chicago at the Sun-Times. And I'm excited to be here. Hopefully we'll get to collab on more episodes in the future. Love it. Andrew, what should our audience know about you? I am an artist, researcher, and educator born and raised in East Harlem. I am a Boricua en la Luna. My family migrated during the Generación de Manos a la Obra. And I am happy to be with you guys here. Oh, we're happy to have you. I want to talk about this pretty, really, really cool project you have. So if we could just kind of do the deep dive on it, El Barrio Tours, Gentrification USA. Can you tell us, um, you know, what is that? Um, how did this come to fruition? Um, and what is your experience like uh, putting this together as a filmmaker? So El Barrio Tours was a film that I did on gentrification and displacement in East Harlem. The way that I first started getting engaged in politics was seeing how people in my neighborhood were being displaced, residents, small businesses. And it led me to try and research read folks like Arlene Davila, for instance, who wrote, you know, wrote Barrio Dreams and spoke a lot about political changes that were happening in my neighborhood. It led me to interview people in my neighborhood who'd been dealing with the rapid development that was pushing on this community, not really being inclusive of, to the benefit of. And so it led me to try and research and then share some of that research through a film called El Barrio Tours, Gentrification in East Harlem. I realized from conversations with people throughout the country as it got accepted into various film festivals and, and conversations with people uh, here in, in New York too, uh, that this was something that was occurring all across the country. You know, initially, I embarked on this film because uh, I wanted to profile the changes that had happened in East Harlem 
through the life of my grandfather, migrating from Sabana Grande, fighting in the Korean War, coming to live in public housing in New York, and, and just seeing how the neighborhood had changed in, in the decades that he lived here. He passed before I got to interview him. So that's why I, I ended up doing a broader piece about the community. And then as I spoke to different communities that watched the film, they said well, the same thing's happening in Humboldt Park, the same thing's happening in Barrio Logan in San Diego. And so I uh, fundraised and, and to, to, so I fundraised to shoot a series of shorts and, and do a, a traveling film series that helped get people together who were organizing various campaigns around housing and to interview and do shorts with people on the various housing and displacement issues that people were facing throughout the country. It led me to meet someone who is now one of my very, very good friends, a man named Raymond Torado. And I, the last short that I shot for El Barrio Torres Gentrification USA, which ended up being that, that broader project, was about his attempt to stay in East Harlem in a rent-controlled apartment. Five years, he fought as the only tenant in this building, the last tenant standing. And I, I did a short about his experience in 2016, and now I'm in the process of trying to put together an update on his experience and what he's learned and what he has to share from five years of resistance living as the only tenant in a building that his landlord was trying to demolish. His landlord was trying to demolish his building to put luxury housing on top. And he was able to defeat the first landlord, drive him into bankruptcy. Um, and, and there's a lot more to the story, yeah. but I definitely want to figure out a way. I'm in the process. The two of us are in the process now of trying to figure out, well, how do we tell this story now? Right. What, what, what is it that people need to hear? And how do we, how do we share this? Because we, we know that whether we're talking about East Harlem or whether we're talking about the Island of Puerto Rico or the islands of Puerto Rico, because it's not just Puerto Rico, right? We always mm -hmm. forget about Vieques and Culebra. Yep this idea of being displaced from your home is something that Puerto Ricans in the diaspora and on the island know about. Ni de aquí, ni de allá. Constantly being displaced. And never really being allowed to be fully in one place. Um, we very much know that as a Puerto Rican people. And the, the strength and resilience and resistance that he showed is definitely something you know we're trying to figure out a way to share and... Um, see how that ends up taking but the the last short on that project was the last tenant standing and you can see that that was um that was aired on pbs so you can check it out there and actually eh, we got the landlord or the management the manager of the property um to to go public they ended up uh, doing an interview with pbs as well so that's a fascinating oh, interview wow. you get to see the manager talk about what they thought property manager what they thought about uh displacing uh, mm. my friends what, what was their if you don't i mean i want to spoil it but you know what, what, what do you feel like their main message was besides we want to get this guy out of here so we could make a ton of money 
what leg did he have to stand on? I guess that's the question I'm trying to get at. Like what part, what redeeming message could he have possibly put forward to put himself in a, in a positive light trying to kick this poor guy out of his building? Well, so the property manager was a she. The uh, landlord was a he. He threw her up front to take the hits. And sad, she had a really clean Google search history until that point. Uh, but now you Google her name and her, her comments with regards to this attempted displacement come up. Her argument to my friend was essentially, this is in your best interest. If you take this buyout, if you take this money and leave your home, you'll get to be one of us. You'll get to be a, a owner. If you accept this deal, if you take this money in exchange for leaving, you will get to be an owner. You will, you will be one of us. Mm. And, um, and, and, and it was, I mean, she, she speaks for herself, but the idea was that this is just natural progress. This is how things go. Mm. And we can't stay stuck in the past. We'll definitely share a link to that in our show notes. We like to hyperlink a lot of the projects and works uh, work our, our yeah. guests are may, involved in. May I actually may I ask where um, you said PBS is where some of the shorts were streamed? Where can people stream like the the full twenty eight minute documentary? Yeah, um, and also access the rest of those. Oh, so so if someone wants to watch El Barrio Tours Gentrification in East Harlem, that's on. That's on YouTube. So is the the shorts that came from the El Barrio Torres Gentrification USA project, including that last tenant standing piece. They're all on YouTube. But um, the update to last tenant standing is outstanding. That is work to be done, held up by COVID, and we're still trying to figure out also how to safely shoot that mm-hmm. in 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 these times, as every email seems to say. <laughs> what are you doing right now during the pandemic then? I mean, because I mean, I'd imagine filmmaking is to me, it takes up so much time. I know you, you've written a lot, too. So, I mean, that that tends to monopolize a, a lot of people's time. I mean, without being able to, to shoot. I mean, how are you how are you keeping busy during the pandemic? I'm not for lack of work. I am currently doing a doctoral fellowship at NYU focusing on how tech and democracy intersect. I'm focusing on how fourth industrial revolution technologies are impacting democratic governance. So Mm. how are technologies like blockchain and AI changing the way we organize ourselves democratically? And so I'm doing my doctoral research there and I'm also a member of my local community board here in East Harlem where I serve on the land use and the district needs and budget committee. And I am still trying to figure out with my friend how we're going to put together this, this update to, to last tenant standing. Mm-hmm. Um, and always looking to volunteer and help with various projects in the neighborhood. And, yeah. and also, you know, as they relate to Puerto Rico, it's funny the way 2020 started, we were fundraising for the earthquake relief in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. holding events throughout the city to deal with that. Um, let's just think about how long and short 2020 has been. I know. Yeah. It, it's, it's been a rough freaking year. Um, 
looking at, I mean, especially you being in New York, I mean, that's, that's gotten hit really hard by the virus. Um, when, when you do, when you do get around to, to filmmaking, you know, of course, all the best as you kind of get yourself situated and figure out how to do that safely. Um, when you do get back in, in the swing of things, uh, I'm sure the, I'm sure that's going to bring its own rush and excitement. Um, I do want to go back in time a little bit to how you developed your your love for filmmaking. I mean, what was the what was the catalyst for that? What made you say, you know, I think I want to want to make short films, documentaries, movies. Like, where did that all start? My love of filmmaking began in high school. Mm-hmm. I never took a formal film course. Oh, so you're self-taught. Well, in it, never at the college level. I took one. Yeah. I took one class in high school. Mm-hmm. It was a film course uh, taught by a, a really good filmmaker in his own right, really good filmmaker in his own right, Edward Gavan. And he showed us the basics of how to set up a camera, how to do audio, how to edit, how to write a storyboard. Um, and from that point on, I really was truly enamored with the ability to create and share stories through that medium. I feel like the camera is a way for me to kind of put some, I, I, I'm someone who can sometimes be rather loud and take up a lot of space. And so the camera is a really great way for me to just take up far less space, be be very quiet and be present to, um, you know, the realities that, that other folks are, are engaging. It obviously doesn't mean that the camera doesn't change the realities that mm-hmm. it's around, but, um, but yeah, for me, it was high school. Yeah. I, I owe that first taste of what it is like to be a filmmaker to that high school course. Mm. So, so hearing that I, I find it interesting that you didn't go to like, uh, you know, like a fancy film school, um, you know, like to receive like formal training. You know, when we do this, it just reminds me that, you know, when we do this podcast, like a lot of the stuff that a lot of myself, our team, a lot of stuff is self-taught. Of course, we have we've had mentors and we've had training here and there. But uh, I love that you didn't go through what some people would consider a traditional route to become a filmmaker. Uh, and I, I don't think, I don't, honestly, I don't think you really have to, especially nowadays. Um, so like thinking about the people listening to this episode that want to get into filmmaking that are getting their first taste of, of filmmaking, you know, do you have any advice for people that want to get their foot in the door and just start creating content of their own? Well, those are two different questions. Getting foot in the door in the film industry and creating content of your own. I was, I was much less interested in foot in the door in the film industry than I was in creating content. Mm -hmm. But I think the focus on creating content puts your foot in a lot of doors and and not just content for content's sake, but I was interested in, in, um, in sharing stories that I think could help that I could learn from and that could help teach other folks things, you know, um, the first film, that I ever worked on, it was a feature length, was a film about a man who was trying to reconnect with his father who had abandoned the family at the age of five, right? Very, very close friend of mine. That was a process of le- right learning about 
that story, I learned a lot about myself. He learned a lot about himself. And learning about how gentrification and displacement was affecting my neighborhood. I, you know, people have learned a lot about the film. I learned so much more, not just from mm-hmm. what uh, I got from interviewees, but the reactions and the different coalitions that have been able to be formed afterwards. It's, it's just, for me, it's a, it's a, it's a practice in learning and of sharing learning that um, is just, I, I, I don't know. I, my life has been truly changed by it, but it didn't require a specific course. Courses are great. I, I don't mm-hmm. knock people who take them. I, I'm currently studying a bit more of film theory uh, as part of my doctoral research because there, there's a, though, 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 hopefully be some sort of film component to the work that I do. But, um, but you know, how do you how do you get your foot in the door? How do you start creating content? If there's a story that you're passionate about. No one can tell it quite the way you can, or more aptly, no one can tell it quite the way the people that you end up coming together to create that story with can. And so that's, there's, there's this, we're, we're past the point of the traditional gatekeepers in film. There's all sorts of other gatekeepers, but you don't need someone to green light you for something for it to be out. You don't need a festival to approve it. You don't need a certain production company to approve it. If you've got folks who want to make something happen, you make something happen and life gets in the way. You know, you folks might pass, um, pandemics might come, but, um, I think being in and with community is really essential to filmmaking and it's it's definitely inspired my filmmaking. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, but no se muevan, because when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Andrew and get his thoughts on the recent Puerto Rico election, the expansion of political parties on La Isla, the narrative on the issue of Puerto Rico status, and more. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. I know that today marks 527 years of Puerto Rico being a colony of the United States. 
for better or for worse, Representative Jennifer Gonzalez. She is our non-voting member of Congress. And she tweeted today, basically, you know, promoting statehood. I would love to hear your thoughts on that specifically. I know that you tweeted a bit about it. Today's also the, the birthday of Lolita Lebron, who's a, who, was, who was a relative of mine. Um, so I'm actually super curious to hear, um, you know, what are the pros and cons of statehood? I mean, obviously, I, I think we're in agreement here that there's more cons than pros. But yeah, I'll let, I'll let you take it away. There has been a lot over the last few weeks that has been really misunderstood about what happened during the 2020 election in Puerto Rico. But I think what most people don't get about the election in Puerto Rico is something that a Time article published yesterday did get, which is that the big story from the island was not the third attempt in a decade at convincing the U.S. of a reality that doesn't exist on the island, that the, a false, a, the false notion that the majority of Puerto Ricans want statehood. The big story on the island was that Puerto Rico is accomplishing what people in the United States right now can only dream of. They are breaking from the two-party system. Right now, the PNP, the statehood party, and the PPD, the Commonwealth Party, the party of the status quo, those are the two main parties. And they're both seeing their vote share decrease. And they're seeing Victoria Ciudadana bringing people from all statuses together into a progressive party. And they're seeing the independence party rising to heights not seen in six decades. There's been so much talk about 26, 27 some odd percent of registered voters in Puerto Rico supporting statehood. And yes, that they won the plebiscite. No one can say that statehood didn't win the plebiscite. Statehood won the plebiscite. No, uh, I am not saying they didn't. Statehooders in my mention, there's just saying all crazy things. Uh, I, I acknowledge that statehood won the plebiscite. But that, unfortunately, is, it does not reflect the majority of people on the island. It is 620,000 out of around 2.3 million registered voters, out of around 3 million people on the island. What we're seeing on the island is people saying, we don't want a party that's for the status quo, and we don't want, in, in, in PPD, and we don't want a party that's going to run on statehood to distract us from the fact that they can't govern, to distract us from the fact that they lied about the deaths in Maria, to distract us from the fact that they have had many party officials get arrested for corruption to distract from the fact that they had two governors kicked out, right? People are saying, we don't want status to distract in that way. Those are the people who are going to Victoria Ciudadana. And then you're seeing people who are stepping up and saying, actually, we do think independence is the direction. And that is leading to a historic rise in support for the independence party. So we said earlier that, yes, this is this was a low participation rate. A lot of people in the US look at Puerto Rico's participation and they say, well, oh, 51% or something, 52% voted in a general election. That sounds good. Compared to the U.S., which has one of the lowest voter turnout rates out of, other out of any other developed nation, right? Puerto Rico, in 1980, was hovering around an 80% participation rate. In 1980, Puerto Rico was looking at around an 80% participation rate in their elections. So... We have decreased significantly from that to the point where we are low. Yes, our low participation looks like normal U.S. participation. And I, I don't know what the final numbers on participation in, in the U.S. are going to be for 2020. It obviously did go up. You mentioned a lot of great stuff. One, 
you spot on with uh, voter participation in Puerto Rico. It's uh, an event. It's a family affair. You know, pe- a lot of people don't have to go to work, don't have to go to school. Um, you know, we had a historic election in the sense that most people ever voted for for both candidates. Um, but looking at that youth vote, um, a lot of those youth driven initiatives kind of connecting it, connecting it to the youth organizing on La Isla, that master class and democracy that we saw in the summer of 2019. It wasn't as high as at least I thought the youth vote was going to be here in the United States. I hope we see, of course, um, of course, uh, a focus on Puerto Rico status, but that not being the end all be all. We have schools closing. We have a debt crisis. Um, you know, we have natural disasters that we have to figure out what are, what's our response and electrical grid. Like there are so many issues that affect people down to even retirement and attacking pen- people's pensions that need to be focused on where we've been talking about status and hinging a lot of the political debates on status to the point where that becomes the focus and then everything else just kind of takes a back seat and it's just not fair to especially working class people on Laila. So I guess my hope is these next four years is we see an even uh, an even greater shift in allegiances and people kind of waking up to, you know, there's there's more to policy than just uh, Puerto Rico status, as important as a discussion as it is. Um, I well, hope actually, we see that to, poli- to policy, the, the candidate who led with a concrete plan for the island that actually put together an over 300-page document explaining their future for the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one who led with that was the candidate from the Independence Party, uh, Pip Wandalmao, and and other candidates yeah. eventually followed. It's not to say that Victoria Ciudadana didn't maybe have that in mind, but that mm-hmm. it, Wandalmao came out with it first, and so that the first uh, that the first candidate for the highest office in Puerto Rico to come out with a comprehensive plan for government during the 2020 election was the Independence Party, um, was something that I think a lot of people gravitated towards, which is why Dalma was able to get support from a lot of people who are not registered Mm people. It doesn't mean that they did not know that Juan Dalma was an independentista, but certainly he was able to get crossover support because he was bringing real concrete policy uh, solutions. And that is something that people are craving. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, you you distract with that sort of status thing when you when you don't actually have a handle on the day to day, and 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 I don't say that that a status conversation is a distraction in itself. The question is, how are you putting that together? Right. And this was a situation where you had Bennett Bay actually running a fear campaign. I saw mm-hmm. the ads, you know, telling people if you vote yes, you know, vote yes to make our relationship with the United States permanent, make us official on Facebook. But if you vote no, we might lose. Not if you if you if, we, if you vote no, we're going to lose federal funding. If mm-hmm. you vote no, you're going to put at risk the the few benefits you still have, mm-hmm. and that wasn't on the ballot, and that scared people in a moment where the economy is terrible in Puerto Rico. Statehood raised their support from 2017 to 2020. In in terms of total votes, they raised about a hundred thousand. It went up about a hundred thousand. Wow. Yeah. And, and so you're talking about like, well, what is it? Like, how is it? It's not just enough to like write off um, supporters of, of, of something that you don't like or don't mm-hmm. agree with how it went down, right? I mean, it's like, what is going on there? How does the statehood party win right. the governor's mansion? How do they win a uh, resident commissioner? And, and now we don't know who's going to win, who's going to be declared winner of San Juan, mayor of San Juan. But one of the real ways was you had a split on the left. And so what people in Puerto Rico are doing right now, activists who are engaged with, with Victoria Ciudadana or BIP, 
They're also getting over the fear that voting for something other than the two major parties is throwing my vote away. That's what we're told. That's what you oh, the third party. That's why Hillary lost Jill Stein, you know, or, 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 mm-hmm. or that's, you know, that was going to be the reason why Biden didn't win. If Biden didn't win, it would be like uh, somehow it was more progressive people deciding that mm-hmm. they didn't see a future in these two. And if you look in 2016, the majority in the U.S. wasn't Trump and the major- Hillary won by three million. But Hillary wasn't the majority either. I mean, wasn't uh, Hillary didn't get the most votes either. The one who got the most votes in 2016 was people who said, I could vote, but I'm not voting for either of you because Mm -hmm. neither of you represent my priorities. And instead of stay home, there's a lot of people in Puerto Rico who are trying to create those alternatives. But a lot of people do stay home in Puerto Rico. And why would you stay home in Puerto Rico? Why would you decide I don't want to vote in Puerto Rico? Gee, I don't know. There's a fiscal control board that has usurped democratic control of the economy on the island. Uh... It's always been a two-party system, and the two parties are corrupt and don't serve our interests. I am watching the island literally collapse. All of the things we were told would happen if we became independent are happening now under this colonial whatever we have. Right. So why would I not want to participate in the election of a colonial government that's bankrupt? Legitimately, why mm-hmm. would I feel like that is going to be a good use of my time? Yeah. And that there were people deciding despite all that, that they wanted to insert themselves in this process and create a more progressive future through it, and that they succeeded in what they did succeed in doing, that they succeeded in taking away vote share, that they could win mayor of San Juan. Uh, that depends on what ends up happening there. They're, they're counting votes, and there's a lot of fishy stuff happening with the Electoral Commission. We don't know what will happen. There. But that they even came that close to get to, that a progressive upstart party third party. Could you imagine a progressive upstart party in New York winning the mayorship? That would be the equivalent. What is mm-hmm. San Juan? The biggest capital city in, in, in Puerto Rico. So New York, cap, biggest capital city, right? That's in, in, uh, in, in the United States. Could we imagine a progressive third party winning in 2021? I couldn't. Yeah. Could we imagine them coming within a percentage point? I don't, I mean, I don't know, Mm. but that's what happened in Puerto Rico. I just will never be able to wrap my mind around if a candidate does not win, why the blame all of a sudden goes on the voter and not the policy that was put forward. One of my biggest fears when watching this past presidential election in the United States was seeing how a lot of these non-Latinx people that were on these election coverage panels all of a sudden started shifting their attention to Latinx voters and how Latinx voters didn't come out for for Joe Biden like they should have, quote unquote. And it's like, we, we're not a monolith. We don't owe anybody our vote. And if you're not if you're not uh, putting forth policy that's in line with our values and what we want to see for our family, um, for ourselves, then the last person you need to blame is us. You need to look in the mirror and look at the policy and what priorities that you have and you're putting forth and what you're deciding to put funding forward and not. And connecting that to funding in Puerto Rico and and federal uh, assistance. I mean, we have the Jones Act. You mentioned PROMESA. We have that. Uh, We still haven't received federal aid from the damage that was caused by Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma. We're we're three years away from that now. That's 2017. We're going into 2021 and haven't gotten that. We don't even have parity for the services that... Uh, that, that Puerto Ricans pay into to receive things like Medicare and Medicaid. We receive a fraction of that. 
Um, so to lean into this, let's tighten this relationship with the United States. What the heck does that mean? Because obviously our relationship hasn't really gotten us much to this point. Well, to that, you can certainly understand why people would want statehood. Mm -hmm. People want, you know, statehood is not the majority on the island, but it is energized and according to the numbers growing group. And why? Why would people want statehood on the island? The argument is that they're going to have more federal funding and Puerto Rico needs help. And so you say, well, we need federal funding. If we become a state, we get federal funding. Of course, the question then becomes, you know, what do you sacrifice for that? And that that's why we need to have a larger conversation because there's no easy solution, right? It's not like we become a state, we get more federal funding, and we don't have to sacrifice and nothing substantively changes. We just get more money. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with independence. It's not like, oh, we become independent. And magically, we're living in an equal, just place. Many colonies have gone through the process of decolonization and really struggled. Yep. And most do struggle to actually create a more just society. It is not easy. The point is, is that neither of these roads is easy. They're complicated. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the Self-Determination Act that was uh, brought forth to Congress by Representative Miriam Vasquez. Um, I know that a few other reps have signed on to it, like Ayanna Presley. What are some of your thoughts about that? I haven't had a chance to like read through the entire bill. The main gist of it is, you know, giving Puerto Ricans the power, the opportunity to decide what we would like to do on the island. I, I'm excited that people are trying to and are dedicated to putting together a true, transparent status conversation that brings together people from all different statuses, all different conceptions of what the future for the island is, and tries to support them in actually crafting that vision without imposing an idea over them over what it should be. Uh, there has never been a moment in U.S. history where the U.S. has officially said, we recognize the plebiscite result. There's never been a moment where the U.S. has said, um, you know, we are going to help you create a binding process to, to, to march towards decolonization. I mean, that hasn't happened. The United States creates Puerto Rico as a commonwealth in 1952 to kind of get away from reporting to the UN. And it's like, here, they're self-governing, they're fine. And of course the UN Committee on Decolonization for decades was like, oh no, actually they are a colony. Actually they are a colony. Of course that never really let, you know, became a full uh, resolution at the UN because of the United States position in it and how subversive that would in fact be to say that the, you know, the, the leaders of the free world have a colony they still have under their, under their uh, foot. But in terms of the actual bill, I don't know what the final language is going to be because there's going to be a, a bill introduced in this session. There's the bill from last session, which is easily accessible. I encourage everyone to go and take a look at it. It's only around seven pages. Um, and, and it sets up in broad strokes uh, uh, a process by which Puerto Rico, if they so choose, can eventually uh, go through a process which to um, create a status convention and eventually put the results of that status convention out to a vote on the island. Um, I think there is contention over how the eventual results come out of uh, the status convention in Puerto Rico, um, being that it, it, the idea is that in Puerto Rico, people would come up 
uh, with all sorts of different ideas, right, for what the status should be, and they would run, and then they would become delegates at this convention, and then they would they would actually put together concrete ideas of how we would move forward. So, okay, I want it to be a state. I want free association. I want independence, whatever it is. Okay, well, this is what it tangibly uh, would look like, maybe, right? Because this is all supposition, right? But But this is us building that together. But I think there's contention as to, and I don't, I don't know how Puerto Rico would accept it if it, if it came out in this way, um, of there just being one result that comes out of that quote unquote closed room, right? Because um, as the legislation from last term says that uh, there will be, the, the, the delegates at that status convention in Puerto Rico would vote on which one they would send out to a vote on the island. And I can just easily see people on the island saying, well, my option didn't come out, I'm not voting, and then participation dips, and how do we have an answer? I also understand why maybe the, the writers of the initial legislation would have wanted that, although I haven't spoken with them about why that was the mode. But I, I can only imagine that you know, the desire in having just one option is right, that you uh, could maybe somewhere approach near a majority. There was only one option up for statehood, and that's not even a mandate, even though it just was one option. So if you have three or four options, there's, of course, I imagine concern of like, well, how, how would you even clearly move forward and say, OK, well, this is the answer. I don't I don't know. But in a general sense, I'm waiting to see final legislation introduced for this next congressional session. But I am very encouraged that people are trying to put together a serious, transparent process for the self-determination of Puerto Rico that is not overtly controlled by one party, but that is open to parties and peoples with all different sides on the status debate. I think we need that because whatever we do, we have to do it together. It, it's not like we're going to partition Puerto Rico and some people will want this future and some people will want that future and then we'll just have like a North and South Puerto Rico that we're going to have to do this together, as painful and as complicated as that is. So speaking of doing this together, one thing that I think about a lot is how to explain the process of decolonization um, when it comes to an island like Puerto Rico. I guess I'm not as familiar with like other countries that have done that, but how do we get that conversation started? I think we start through determining our own future, or at least attempting, at least saying that we deserve that right. Uh, we deserve the right to self-determination. We deserve the right to come together and decide as a community what we want our future to be. I don't know what that future will be. I don't necessarily know what that process should. Uh, I'm not the one who's going to say, I know what this process should be. I'm not even the one to say that I'm confident that people on the island are, are, are willing and ready to go through the process of self-determination right now. I, I don't know that. Um, that that remains to be seen. But uh, in my mind, if we are going to engage in a process of self-determination, it means coming together as a Puerto Rican people to decide our own future, to try and do that together. But I, I can't tell you what exactly that looks like because, well, if we were able to accomplish it, it'd be historic. It'd be something that mm -hmm. certainly has has not happened um, in in our island's history. We don't have a have a, I mean, I guess you could say that we have to some extent a precedent in that people forget when, when the United States invaded uh, 122 years ago, 
Puerto Rico was in the process of creating self, their own self-governance, right? They, 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 they had for generations both protested Spanish colonial rule and worked to gain seats in Spanish representative government in the Corona. So there, there was a mix. You had thing, you know, movements like the Grito de Lares. You had a whole bunch of people saying, we want to be free of Spain. But then you also had people who were working to try and move the levers of government in Spain. And you had a, you had a dying empire in, you know, 122 years ago in Spain um, that, you know, eventually lost their colony. But they had been letting go of power for a long while. They'd been losing control of the colonies in Latin America for a long while. And one of the reasons Puerto Rico... Um, you know, what, what kind of delays in some ways their process of self-determination is in part because we kind of get the uh, colonial um, migrants uh, from other Latin American countries. Spain's colonies, when, 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 when Spain loses some of their colonies like Venezuela and stuff, you start to see people come to Puerto Rico. It's like, I, I would prefer to be in a colony, right? If, I'm, if, I am a, if I am a Spanish colonialist, I would prefer to be in a colony than be in a country people who determine they want to be free. Um, but Puerto Rico was in the process. They were in the process of their first uh, uh, legislative session when the United States comes in. And so I, I, I take back that about saying that we have not before. No, we actually were in the process of our own representative government uh, leading our own island. We were in that process when the United States came and, and arrested that process mm-hmm. and arrested that progress. So part of this is also learning our history and knowing that we are capable of determining in our own futures. Um, We have done it before, but it's so hard. Even even in educators myself, sometimes I forget because we're also not taught about any of it. Yeah, definitely not at all. For me, it was being in middle school and reading a, a sentence, one sentence in my U.S. history book about Puerto Rico being a commonwealth of the United States. And I remember going to my history teacher and being like, so this is it? This is all we have to learn <laughs> about Puerto Rico? You told him this is it? This is it? <laughs> I did. I, went up to, I forget his name, but I went up to him after class and was like, this is unacceptable. And he didn't care. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no. uh, we were told they were a protectorate. That's what I was. Mm-hmm. We were, we're, we're saving the yep. U.S. Yeah, we're being protected by the yeah. U.S. Right. Yeah, no, so right. I mean, I, I very similar story. Uh, it wasn't until college that I realized this, and that was just from having conversations with people in the Humble Park community that had been doing organizing for years, and they were like just dropping knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb on me that just set me on this path where I just started reading. Because to your point, I'm about it like a page, a paragraph, and a textbook does not nearly do our history justice, especially when it's skewed in favor of the colonizer. Andrew, really appreciated having you on the show today. Um, for anybody that wants to keep up with you after this episode, how can people keep up with you? Social media channels, website, what do you got? My website has about a million and one ways to contact me. So just andrewjpadilla.com. I'm annoying on Twitter at film 6 Andrew, thank you again for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Andrew J. Badia for being on the show today. 
Next week, we're going to have artist and children's book author Adrian Roman on the show to talk about his books, his art, and a whole bunch more. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at paseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at Paseo Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.